Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and thank you so much, those who are listening, uh, allowing us to come into your home this evening. I trust that you have had a good day today. We are thankful that God has kept us alive for another day, another opportunity to answer difficult questions from a biblical worldview here on the program tonight. Pastor, we're going to start with several questions that are carryover from last week that we didn't have time for. And these come from a listener in St. Kitts. The first one is, the ten nations out of Europe will form an alliance. When and why? And where can I get information on this to read? Well, I think we did a series on prophecy, and I suppose that Nathan would draw attention to that area that we covered already, but let me just briefly make a comment on that matter. Uh, the time when this uh, this uh, ten-nation confederacy the Bible talks about, it will occur, the Bible says, in the latter days. And this, of course, will be during the tribulation period. Uh, why uh, that occurs, like every single uh, political bloc or military bloc, there's always the idea of world dominance. And it's very clear that um, from the book of prophecy, especially Daniel and uh, Revelation, there will be a final world empire. And, you know, governments are all about control and and power. And I suspect that this uh, confederacy that be formed, a ten-nation confederacy out of Europe, will become the dominant power in the end time. And I suppose it would have to do with the idea of becoming dominant in the world. As far as where you can find that information, the original information is found in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to 44, where it talks about the ten toes. And then Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 to 27, it talks about the ten horns. And when you come to the New Testament, light is shed on this in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 to 10, it talks about the ten horns. And Revelation chapter 17, verse 7 to 11, which also talks about the ten, ten horns. I want to recommend some books that you would uh, be able to get the information as far as God's prophetic calendar is concerned, as well as information about uh, these uh, this this uh, ten nation confederacy that will occur in the end time. I want to recommend the the best book I think I've read on the Bible prophecy is the book by um, John Walvoord. Uh, Daniel, you need his book on Daniel, which is called the Key to Prophetic Inter- Interpretation. I think that's a classic. He has a sequel that goes on with the book of Revelation, so you need to get John Walbert's book on Daniel and the one on Revelation. Uh, The standard work on Bible prophecy, especially from a premillennial point of view, is the one by uh, Dwight Pentecost called Things to Come. 
it's a very large volume, but it covers every area of Bible prophecy, and I think you'll find that, that was, that's, that's one that you should always have in your library. Uh, Hal Lindsey has one called There's a New World Coming. It's more of uh, it's more pedestrian. It's not as uh, academic as, as uh, Walbert would be, but again, he has a lot of helpful information in there. And then Harry H. Ironside, he has one in Revelation as well, and one in Daniel. Uh, you should try to get that if you can. And then A.C. Gabelin, uh, Prophecy of Daniel, that's another extremely good book. And one that I find very, very, very um, helpful in explaining Daniel's 70th week is one written by a guy called Alva McLean. It's called Daniel's Prophecy of the 70 Weeks. Uh, you should get that. That would really open up the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which has to do with the tribulation period. I, I recently got one that someone sent me. This is a Jew. Uh, it's a very large volume as well. It's called The Footsteps of the Messiah. And I hope I pronounced this gentleman's name correctly. It's Dr. Arnold Frostenbaum. Um, that book you can probably get online, etc. And then uh, one that I used many years ago uh, is called Revelation Visualized by Salem Kurban. I don't know if there's an updated version of it, but one of the attractions of it that he kept, uh, he kind of linked Bible prophecy with current events and had a lot of photos and pictures that uh, made it very attractive. So I think if you can get uh, any of those volumes, uh, the main ones would be Walverd, uh, both Daniel and Revelation, and Dwight Pentecost, Things to Come. Those are three that you must have. The others are optional, but those three in particular would be very helpful in getting all that information about this uh, European Ten-Nation Confederacy that will come about in the end times. Well, that list of books, I got tired just listening to it. That's great, <laughs> great information that ought to keep most of us busy for the rest of the year 2020. Uh, I know the listener who sent in that question really appreciates you sharing that information, Pastor. Um, the time across the Eastern Caribbean is 737. And as Pastor mentioned, we did do a series on Bible prophecy and specifically on Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 uh, would be episode number 90 and episode 91. And the way that you can get to that, the easiest way, is go to radiolighthouse.org. Once you're at our website, then scroll down until you see the picture of the microphone. And right in the middle of the picture of the microphone is a link for podcast. If you click on that, then it'll pop up and you see uh, our two podcasts here at the Lighthouse, the top one being That's Truth, and then click on the Visit Podcast link, and you can access all previous episodes of That's Truth. And look for episode number 90 and episode 91. And if you're interested in Bible prophecy as a whole, uh, episode 89 all the way to episode 102 was focused on a very in-depth uh, explanation of Bible prophecy. Our next question comes from the same listener in St. Kitts. Where can I get information on God's calendar? Well, I think those two, those two books, especially the one by Walbert, uh, Daniel, and uh, Revelation, and the one by Dwight Pentecost, I think if you were to uh, get those books, you'll see that they outline the steps of, uh, of the future. Uh, basically, it boils down to the fact that you're going to have the rapture, then you're going to have the tribulation, after the tribulation, you're going to have the millennium, and then after the millennium, you've got final judgment, and then you go into the eternal state. But they would they would uh, itemize that more clearly and uh, help you to 
to see the steps that are uh, prophetically um, the order in which God will bring about the end times. So I think if those two books would be very, very helpful to, to bring that information forward to, uh, to you. Pastor, if I'm looking for a book or I'm standing in a bookstore and in the section on Bible prophecy and I'm looking through the credentials of individuals, what are some things that I should look for or maybe avoid uh, like if they're all millennials, should I read their book, yeah. not read their book, or would you be concerned about that? Well, it, it, it depends. If you're a pastor and you already know your position, I really think it's helpful to to read the other guy's position because Bible prophecy is one of those areas we've got to be very careful that we don't base our fellowship exclusively on Bible prophecy. This is the area that is very nebulous and it's been changing. For And a lot of the, uh, the guys that are, are millennials, by the way, most of the textbooks that are used in universities today, uh, theological seminaries, were written by those guys. Uh, a lot of these guys are, are very solid uh, theologians, especially within the Reformed tradition and uh, the Calvinist um, Calvinist uh, sector. But I would recommend that if you're going to uh, to buy a book on Bible prophecy, I am premillennialist, and I think most evangelical Baptists are premillennial. Um, I would recommend that you see if the person is writing from a premillennial view, a pre-tribulation view. Uh, I, I would recommend that. I wouldn't. I would suggest that unless you are fully established in what you know, what you believe, I wouldn't think you should tinker with the other one uh, because it could create massive confusion. Uh, try to. Um, I, I'm sure we're fairly right on this matter, so you just get a <laughs> premillennial uh, presentation of Bible prophecy. I think that would be very helpful. The other thing is, um, you could probably Google premillennialism. In Google, uh, books on premillennialism or pre-tribulation, and I suppose you will get a, a list of those kind of books. Um, I think most people listen to Hal Lindsey on the um, on the internet. Uh, he has some very good books that I uh, very very layman type of books, but uh, some of you're not going to agree with everything he says. Uh, but generally speaking, um, most of what he teaches we would probably endorse with the exception when they become very, very sensational and try to make the demons in um, the book of Revelation being uh, two million, twenty, uh, 200 million uh, soldiers, etc., etc. So other than that, I think he's, he's, he's solid. But find that Walverd, I mean, Walverd is common in Pentecost. So you see anything by Pentecost or Walverd, uh, I think would be, first of all, you, you want to get that those kind of books. And one final question along these same lines. Where should I get information on the 12 events to fulfill between 69 and 70 weeks? Again, that's the book I mentioned to the gentleman there, uh, Alvin uh, McLean, uh, Daniel, 70 weeks. In between there, uh, he's talking about the there are 12 events supposed to occur, but they itemize there. In his book, he would itemize that. Pentecost would deal with that as well, and uh, those events that have to occur. And uh, Walvert would deal with that. So those three books I'd mentioned would contain the information and those three areas I'd asked about the, uh, where I find about the Ten Nations, uh, where I find about the uh, these 12 things that events are supposed to take place. I think uh, you'll find that information, especially in the one with uh, Alvin McLean, uh, that in itself, Daniel, 70, 70 weeks, he deals with it very exhaustively, very exhaustively. I think they'll find it uh, very helpful. For the person who is writing down these names and uh, is trying to get it all, can you give us those three books? Again, okay, the, three the one focus? by Pentecost, Dwight Pentecost, Things to Come. 
That's the title of it, Things to Come. The one with John Walford is the book of Daniel, Daniel, and it's called The Key to Prophetic Interpretation. And uh, Walford, again, uh, by Re- in Revelation. And the other one I mentioned is by Alva McLean, and his book is Daniel's Prophecy of the Seventy Weeks. McLean is spelled M-C-C-L-A-I-N, and the first name is Alva, A-L-V-A. Thank you very much for that information. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 743. Maybe you have a question. We would love to answer it. You can call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can send it to us via Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. And then you can join the video feed and comment your question or your suggested topic. We are always open for suggestions on topics. We want this program to be as practical as possible. We know the Bible is practical. We know that the Bible has the answers to all of our questions in life. Pastor, I know you've said this before, that the Bible, you believe the Bible has answers to all the questions in life, but the Bible doesn't talk about iPads and computers. So when issues come from technology, how do you, where do you, what book of the Bible should I turn to to look for those answers? Well, uh, when I say that it, uh, the Bible has an answer to every question, I'm not too sure what aspect of this technology you're concerned about. For example, um, the Bible gives certain principles about, about life and the sovereignty of God. I don't think we ought to manipulate the genes to create a human being, for example, because we are now playing the role of God. God is a person who creates human beings. So when it comes to, uh, so I'm not too sure what aspect of technology. Um, I mean, there's certain. Um, what about? Uh, yeah, what about, try to clarify a little yeah, bit. What yeah. Yeah. What, what What about? Okay. So so many people, mm-hmm. so many of us are mm-hmm. addicted to our cell phones, our smartphones. Mm-hmm. What does the Bible talk about that? Is there no, okay, I, I get where you're coming from. Well, it's like any other addiction. Okay, uh, you treat uh, the, the use of the cell phone, uh, any other form of um, where something is controlling and dominating the person's life. Uh, you, you've got to look at it from the biblical perspective. Nothing should actually control the individual as a believer. We ought to be free and at liberty. And if something is dominating my life so that I've lost virtual control of it, I'm gone without the pale of my Christian liberty, and therefore I'm jeopardizing my relationship with, with God in terms of the use of my time. So, I mean, we, you know, we can talk about an alcoholic being addicted to affect his body, but the, the, the other forms of addiction that affects our relationship with God, if I'm spending so much time on my cell phone, I have no time to pray. I have no time to read the Bible. Uh, clearly, that is a different form of addiction. The problem with us is that we only think that sexual sins and, and, and moral sins are, the, the, but the Bible talks sins of the spirit as well, as well as sin of the flesh. And I think we need to be aware that the believer should never be brought under the control of anything. Paul talks about that, of course, in Romans chapter 9 and Corinthians chapter, I think it's chapter 10, where Paul talks about, he, you know, all things are lawful for me. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. Those principles apply to any form of addiction, whether it be the use of the cell phone, whether it be the use of the computer, iPod, whatever it is. Any form of addiction, the biblical principle is I must not be brought under the power of anything. I've lost my control. And uh, my time as well is vitally important how I use my time. So there are principles that would help a, a person in that regard. 
Pastor, we have a question from a listener, and they'd like you to give your input and help to answer a question that was recently asked of them by an agnostic, a skeptic, an atheist. Uh, and they, the skeptic was asking, what do you mean by saved by grace, and what exactly is grace? Can you help them answer that okay. from a biblical? Well, uh, when we come to the Scripture, um, this particular word, grace, is a very prominent word uh, in the New Testament. I don't think anybody can ever appreciate the meaning of the New Testament and the message of the New Testament apart from this concept of grace. Uh, if you check all the epistles, it virtually starts with uh, uh, greetings of grace and then only conclude the benediction with grace. It's significant also the last book of the Bible that ends with grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, etc. Um, the idea of grace is something that is progressively revealed in Scripture. Uh, under the Old Testament economy of law, grace is not as prominent as it is in the New Testament. But you do have the root concept of grace in the Old Testament. Uh, and and, and um, if you check the user English uh, concordance, you will find the word grace in the Old Testament. Very, very seldom is it mentioned. But when you come to the New Testament, there's an overwhelming mention of that particular uh, word. There are parallels, however, in the, in the Old Testament that um, suggest the concept of grace. And you will find some types and examples uh, and hints of that, that idea. Um, basically, in the Old Testament, the, the word that comes closest to the, the idea of grace in the New Testament is the word Hanan, the Hebrew word Hanan. And it basically means to be merciful and to be gracious to me. Uh, you'll find that is mentioned many times in the Psalms, and I think the Psalms in itself really express that concept. You remember Psalm 51, verse 1? Could you read that for just a second? Yeah. Is that the Psalm where David is repenting? Correct. Yeah. Uh, psalm 51 one says to the chief musician a psalm of david when nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to bathsheba have mercy upon me O god according to thy loving kindness according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies blot out my transgressions this is probably the closest concept that you have to grace that word there have mercy upon me is the word hanan and it really means be gracious towards me show favor towards me and notice that the appeal for this grace is based on God's love according to your loving kindness and loving mercy uh, that concept is what is really highlighted in the New Testament and uh, this is probably the best I, uh, the best parallel between the Old Testament the New Testament grace and the Old Testament concept of mercy and, and God being gracious. The Psalms, for example, emphasize, and, and, and grace is needed, uh, Nathan, basically because man has found himself in a, a very helpless condition. There's nothing he can do for himself. He needs to turn to God. And in the Psalms, you'll find that repeating the Psalms, um, David always taught man's inadequacy and man's weakness. Sometimes he taught man's distress. He taught man's agony, his persecution. Sometimes man's loneliness and affliction. Uh, he talks about man's disaster, his weaknesses, his, his troubles, his sin. And because of man's inadequacy, Adequacy and uh, man de needs deliverance, man looks outside himself and looks to, to God. That's the idea, that man needs f favor from God because man is inadequate for himself. So when you come over to the New Testament now, you find that that word grace becomes very commonly used. And the Apostle Paul is perhaps a person that has um, developed it as a technical term, a theological term that has to do with God's unmerited favor towards the sinner. 
And uh, so when we talk about grace, we are talking about God acting on the behalf, uh, 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 God acting out of love uh, to help man in a situation when man is completely helpless and man has no other alternative but to turn to God. So to, to tell a, a skeptic or an agnostic what we're talking about grace, it, we are talking about uh, God in his mercy acting in favor towards man without man having any kind of merit in himself that requires God to do it. It's, it's an act of mercy without any kind of human merit. And uh, and it's very difficult for a person who's an agnostic to see that because an agnostic is a very self-sufficient person. It's an atheist as well. He sees no need for God. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why they have a problem comprehending that. But you can never understand the need of grace until you understand the biblical doctrine of anthropology that man is a fallen creature who has offended God sinned against God and man is guilty before God and need forgiveness and pardon so start with that concept when debating or talking with them yeah you can't you, 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 no one will understand grace apart from understanding the human condition if you can come to get a person to understand the human condition that man was created by God in, in God's image that man was put on a probationary period and man was put in a place of perfect paradise and man was given a, a, a test it was a matter whether he obeyed God or, or disobeyed God man willfully went against God's will and disobeyed God as a result of that man is literally guilty before God and man needs forgiveness and pardon and man has inherited the sinful nature as a result of Adam's sin so all of us are now born in a sinful state and we cannot approach God because God is holy we cannot help ourselves by any merit so that we can whatever we can do to, to win God's favor we can't do that God has to act in his sovereign grace uh, without any kind of human merit to reach out to man to salvage man and that's what the Bible teaches that when man was in his sin God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross the wage of sin is death Christ took the sinner's place uh, when he died on the cross so that God is now able to pardon man because Christ not only died for man but Christ took man's sin upon himself so God can pardon uh, man on the behalf of the meritorious work of Jesus Christ he suffered vicariously so but it has to start with the whole concept of the fall to understand why there's need for grace if we don't believe the fall if we don't accept the fall uh, we, we spitting words we'll never get anywhere with a person until we can get them to the point where they understand that they're sinners before God because if you're not a sinner you don't need grace if you can never come to the concept that you're really a, a fallen creature and you're sinful then you see that uh, to approach this God you need some kind of pardon forgiveness and no matter how we try we every year people try to turn up a new page you know, well, Lord, it'd be different. But we all recognize that our weaknesses, uh, you try for two weeks, three weeks, a month, and you're back to these same old ways. You need divine help, and that is where you cry out to God for mercy, and God acts in favor and grace without I doing anything that would merit that so that I can be forgiven and pardoned. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.54. You're tuned in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, we are also on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video. The next question, Pastor, that we have, did you have anything else to mention? On no, I, I, I think, uh, if I might use an illustration, you know, I, I think uh, I've used this before, and uh, I know it's wor worth mentioning again, but imagine a person who have 
become totally bankrupt. Uh, they run up a bill where a million dollars, uh, and they re- they recognize that no matter what they do, they can never earn a million dollars. But because they've actually incurred the debt, the debt must be paid. If they can't pay the debt, it means they've got to be incarcerated for the balance of their life. But then some rich person, uh, for whatever reason, maybe Bill Gates with his billions of dollars, hears of the precarious condition of this this person who is, uh, even though they've done it willfully or done it ignorantly, whatever, but out of, out of, for no reason, he learns of the person's condition, and because he is such a wealthy person, he writes a check for a million dollars to the individual. Now, the person doesn't merit that, he doesn't do anything to get it, but out of his, his, his grace, out of his, his, his compassion, he does it. Uh, now, when the check arrives, the person can do one or two things with it. He can actually tear it up and say, "This is this. N- nobody is that good. Nobody will ever do this to me," and remain in jail for the balance of his life. Or if he's wise and he sees Bill Gates' signature at the bottom, he rushes to the guy and says, "Hey!" And his name is so well known, the debt is paid. Christ has done something like that for us. God has done something like that for us. We could not pay the debt we owe. And uh, he decided to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the debt for us. Now, we can do one or two things today. We can either accept that payment or we can reject that payment. But if we reject the payment, we will suffer the consequences. And uh, if we if we accept it and receive it by faith, then we'll be pardoned and forgiven. Simple illustration, but I think that illustrates the truth of what we're talking about. If you've just tuned in, this is an interactive call-in program. So you can call and be put live on the air with... Your question, maybe what the Bible says, why the Bible doesn't say something, how the Bible says something. Maybe it's a question that someone asked you at work or on a WhatsApp chat and you don't really know for sure how to answer it or you you would like pastor's input on how to answer a question from a biblical worldview. We would love for you to call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 268-462-7420. Give that to you again after you get your phone unlocked or your pen and paper out to call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Maybe you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question. That would be great also. You could send your question to 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Pastor, another question from a listener. Can you please explain that issue to me? Does man have a soul? I think think we've mentioned that some other program as well, but let me just deal with it very quickly. Look, this is part of what we call biblical psychology of the human nature. Um, You've got to understand that the Bible is progressive in its teaching. Uh, if you look into the Old Testament, uh, you will have some um, teaching there that has to be enlightened by the New Testament teaching, which sheds the full light on this matter. Um, when we come to the New Testament, let's deal with the New Testament, and then we'll work our way back rather than work our way forward. What I find with um, the groups that uh, claim that man doesn't have a soul, that etc., uh, etc., et uh, I, I find that... Um, these are people who basically base their human psychology on the Old Testament, and they never allow the enlightenment of the New Testament to, to be shed on that. So let's 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 do that. Um, I would like to point out first of all that there is clearly 
two parts to man. There is a material part called his physical body, and there is an immaterial part. Now, let me show you that our Lord taught that very clearly. Uh, read Matthew ten twenty-eight for just a moment. Matthew chapter 10, 10 verse 28. Verse 28 reads as follows. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear them, him which is able to destroy both soul and body. And it's health. very, very clear that our Lord identifies two parts. You can kill the body, the physical body, but you can't kill the soul. Okay. Now, if you, if you can kill the physical body, it means the body was alive. If you can kill the soul, it means the soul is alive. So it's very obvious he is saying there are two different parts. What the, the Adventists have done, they've confounded these two things. And they are saying that when man received the nephesh, which is called the soul, man became a living soul. So they're saying that the man, you, they don't make a decision between the soul and the human and, 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 the, and the physical person. They're all one, basically. So when man dies, the soul dies. But read the text again. It's very, very clear that the soul survives. Our Lord is saying, look, don't fear anybody who, because of whatever, they can kill you, kill the physical body, but they can't kill the soul that's within your physical body. So clearly there's a, a physical part and there is an immaterial part. Both are life. One can be killed by man, but it, one cannot be killed by man. This, the, the soul cannot be killed by man. Very, very clear there. Yeah. Um, let me give you another reference. Look at... Um, um, by the way, uh, might look at also at Acts chapter two verse twenty-seven. That may be another reference there. Um, All right, that says, "Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption." Right, that is David, and uh, I know it. It, um, it is used in the book of Acts to speak of Christ. It's referring to Christ, but don't forget, David is talking, and he's prophesying about Christ. But notice that the you will not leave my what my soul in hell. In hell, it's not your, not your physical body. That's the part that is alive, which is called your soul part. Okay, uh, so that you got those two. Right. But also look at um, Second First Thessalonians chapter five verse twenty three. First Thessalonians five twenty three says, "And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your Holy Spirit." And soul and body pre preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, clearly, if the body and the soul and the spirit is one, uh, Paul has made a clear dichotomy here. He said, I want God to preserve your body, I want to preserve your soul, I want to preserve your spirit. So, clearly, there's a tripartite to man's human nature. Uh, I, I, I find it difficult uh, where a person does not see that in the New Testament, the biblical psychology of human nature is given more detail than the Old Testament. You can't take the Old Testament teaching as a basis uh, to establishing a doctrine because the Bible progressively reveals these. these Let me show you another important verse. You remember in um, Luke chapter 16 with uh, Lazarus and, and Davies? Uh, you remember the story? Yeah, yeah. You remember that it is said that the rich man died? Right. And also the, the, the poor man died. And, he said, and in hell he lifted up his what? His soul. Now his body died, but his soul is in is in Hades. 
So there's two parts. The body went into the grave. The soul went into Hades. So again, you've got these two parts. So it's not a question whether man has a soul. If you believe the Bible, uh, it is very, very clear that Christ speaks on this matter. It's very, very clear that Paul speaks on this matter. It's very clear that our Lord, in the, 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 the you, if you want to call it a parable, his teaching, whatever it is, that he made it very clear after man's death, his soul was in Hades being tormented. Now again, the Adventists don't believe that because they don't believe in a hell, basically. But So when you start with a wrong premise, you try to interpret the Bible to fit into your, your frame of mind. If you take the Scripture and allow the Bible to speak for itself, uh, it becomes very clear that man is a tripartite being, and um, there is a body, there's a soul, and a spirit. I'll show you after we take the call that in the book of Hebrews, that is also pointed out uh, in the book of Hebrews. Let's take the call. Thank you very much for calling from Bendles. Go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good evening, good evening. Good evening, sir. How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Good. Yeah, Pastor Murphy, I would like to ask a question. I know it's going to help me. Hello? Uh, go yeah, ahead. Go, go ahead. We're listening. We're listening. Yeah, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 22, uh-huh. two questions. When God tell Abraham that he sacrificed Isaac, uh-huh. his, his only son. Uh-huh. Is it that Ishmael was not the son of Abraham? Too? Did he what? Ishmael. Yeah, but Ishmael is a different son. Ishmael is the son of the flesh. Abraham, I mean Isaac, the son of promise. Remember that uh, Ishmael was born from Hagar. Hagar was uh, Abraham's servant that he got yeah. from Egypt. Yeah. But uh, but the the son of promise through who the Messiah would come. Um, that is who Ishmael the line of Isaac is the line of the Messiah the line of Ishmael is the line of the Arabs basically so he did have two sons but he's not and it's interesting by the way that you should ask that question because he <laughs> this is the uniqueness of the Bible uh, when he said uh, sacrifice my, my son my only son basically yeah, in that yeah, particular yeah. passage because he is the only son of promise and that's what makes Christ unique as a son of God as well. God has other sons, but there's only one son of God. And Isaac becomes a type of Christ. And that's why that particular language is used. It's all pointed towards the one, the God's son would come, God's special son would come. So that's why that terminology is used. But yeah, he did have a second son, but it's not the son of promise, it's the son of the flesh. Okay, again, I'm fine. Okay, and uh, my second question now. Sure. Do uh, you under me? Chapter 9. Oh, oh one, one other thing. One other thing I would say. But you see the word there, only? Yeah. Yeah, that's the same word that is from, uh, used in the Greek language uh, in the Greek Septuagint. It means only unique son, basically. In other words, oh. this is a special son. That's why I said it doesn't mean I have only 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 one son. It means yeah. I have you are my special, unique son. Yeah, the okay, son of okay, promise. Okay. That's what it means. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Me. What's the second question? Yeah. Uh, do you remember me chapter 9? Okay, I don't know what it says. Uh, uh, when, when Moses had gone up to, have to receive the tablet of stone, the commandment, uh-huh. when God tell him, let, like, you know, let me alone, let me destroy the people and the enemy, uh-huh. because all they turn against the man. Uh-huh. And so that was my if they were not the train of God and got them to rush it against them and tell them they want to destroy them and build a new nation uh-huh. and we have to plead and pray. Uh-huh. So that was a thing about 
No, no, don't, but don't, don't forget, if you read the book carefully, a mixed multitude went out of Egypt. Not everybody that came out of, huh? Not, not everybody that came out of Egypt were, 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 were saved. So that's why the Bible emphasizes uh, that a mixed multitude went up. So you've got a mixture of believers and unbelievers uh, in that particular case. But don't forget that, you know, destroying and starting doesn't mean destroying uh, in eternity. Uh, it's taught, destroyed them uh, physically. And uh, because there were, there's some people died in the Old Testament, for example, that clearly were, 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 were people who had faith. For example, I don't think Achan is lost. I don't think so, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, even though I think Achan sinned, uh, and he had he was made an example, but I think he could have been a man of faith. Uh, yeah. Achan. So I don't. I don't think you must take it that that is eternally destroying them. It's not starting over with a new nation. But don't, the, the key thing there is the idea that the the people that came out of Egypt were a mixture. There were believers and unbelievers that came uh, out of Egypt. That's why after you have not I guess within a month they are now going back to the golden calf because the apis was the god of Egypt which is the the, the, the god the calf god and mm -hmm. now they have got taken that same god out of Egypt and brought it into the wilderness and the moment Moses goes into the hills they say let us make us a god what kind of a god going to make well they make a god just like the god in Egypt so you got to remember and throughout the wilderness journey you have, uh, read the account given in the book of Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is reciting the whole uh, profile of Israel's history and he talk about how they worship false gods, etc. So throughout the wilderness journey, uh, you've got people who are still steeped in paganism and that's why that kind of language, and they were always frustrating Moses because no matter what Moses did, uh, he reached a point where he said, you know, why, God, where you put this weight upon me, you know? So don't think that all of those people that came out were, were, were uh, believers. It was a mixed multitude. Okay, and, and one more thing. I, I had, we, had a, today I was in tongue, so I guy talking to him. Yeah. And he said he's a believer, but I don't know. He told me that oh, all who... All who are supposed to be a Christian, God's chosen them already. Uh -huh. But they know God gave everybody a command that to receive Him as Lord and Savior, and then they can be His son and thing. Yeah. They know because remember, God tells Esau, "Have I hate and Jacob have I love." Yeah. So, well, no. The, the reason for that, he's probably what you call a Calvinist. A Calvinist believes that when you were born, before you were born, uh, they, they believe that you you don't have any decision. To make uh, God just rubber stamp people say you for heaven you for hell that is what a Calvinist believes okay basically that when you you came into this world and God said you for heaven you for hell uh, we don't hold to that view we believe that God is a uh, sees man as a moral being and God knows who's going to be saved and who will be lost but that is based on God's foreknowledge uh, and we believe that every man has a choice if you didn't have a choice, I cannot be held accountable uh, for any. I, I cannot be a moral being if I don't have a choice. I, you can If I don't have a choice of um, this is this is what what I had to do, and I didn't have a choice. How can you hold me more responsible for how I live? Yeah. So, but that's a Calvinistic view. We don't hold to that Calvinistic view uh, that uh, you know. Uh, you're gonna learn. You're gonna learn as you go on in your Christian faith that there are different different views on these these matters. But uh, um, Calvinists are very very strong on these matters, and they believe that 
God has predestined certain people to be lost, and God has predestined certain people to be saved. Yeah, and and yet the thing that that answered uh, talking about oh, when God said that I will have mercy upon who I have mercy and and I will destroy who I will want to destroy. You know, you remember that verse in the Bible when the Bible talks about that? Yeah, but again, if you if you if you read the context of that, okay, uh, that particular passage is dealing with Israel's national uh, life. Is not dealing with the, the, the matter of this eternal state of a person. Uh, for example, there are people who, I mean, if you said, um, it, when it, when he compares um, Esau and Jacob, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that uh, Esau would not have had a chance uh, to repent if he wanted to repent. Uh, so it has a lot to do with the national life of Israel and God choosing people for specific purposes, right? But I do believe that, that I do believe that every individual has a choice. And uh, I do believe that uh, a person will be judged based on what choice the person makes. If that is not true, that individual cannot be judged because um, he doesn't have a moral choice. Morality involves choice. Without choice, you don't have morality. And God is a moral being and we were made in the image of God. So I do believe that every person has a choice and will be given and based on that choice will determine the destiny. Look, okay. any person that puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and genuinely repented of the sin is going to heaven. Okay? Th- that, so just make sure that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and uh, <laughs> you're safe, right? A lot of these, the- by the way, can I say this? A lot of these theological arguments have been going on for hundreds of years and yeah, people yeah, yeah, can't, yeah. you can't solve them. You just, yeah. you just thank God that you've repented, you put your faith and trust in Christ and you know that you're in Him. End the story, so you don't have to argue with these people on these well, matters. Well, <laughs> I, I I do that thing in 1974. Well, <laughs> a, amen, amen, amen. Seen, so. Amen, amen. <laughs> and he said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, nor never perish. Yes. It's double negative, guaranteed. Paul yeah, says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and Jesus, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor things to come. Now things in the sea or under the sea, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate it from the love of God. I, I, I know that. I know. So we are safe and secure, brother. Amen. <laughs> okay, God bless. Thank you very much for your call. Yeah. Oh, uh, Nathan, the other thing I just want to point out, um, if you look at Hebrews 4.12 for just a minute in connection with this matter of the soul. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We're jumping back to answering a question about does man have a soul and how we'd answer that from Scripture. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The point here that notice that he's talking about the soul and the spirit, those mm-hmm. two dimensions. But you notice that it seems to be that this spiritual part of man is distinguished, but not really separable. separable. Uh, and, I, and this is where the whole the whole part comes in that when it's not the soul and the spirit. But it seems as though from this particular passage that there is a distinction. But they seem to be the make up the competent part of the 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 uh, what you call the spiritual nature of man. Okay, uh, someone has put it this way, and I want to read what he said. This is a guy called Creamer. He said, "The soma of the body 
and the puma and the spirit may be separated, the body and the spirit. But he said, however, the puma and the and the sukkah, which is the soul, the spirit and soul, can only be distinguished but not separated. So it's th- interesting. Th- that that is the linkage there. But I don't think anybody can read the Bible without seeing there's a material part called the body, and there's an invisible part, a spiritual part that we call the soul and the spirit. Some people call it, say that uh, they believe in a uh, uh, man is a uh, dichotomy, two parts, body and, so, body and uh, material and immaterial. Some believe the tripartite is body, soul, and spirit. Uh, but both of these groups believe in the body and the spiritual part of man. And that's where we need to understand that uh, man does have a soul, a man does have a spirit. And the Bible talks about the soul being preserved, the spirit being preserved, and the body being preserved. So I don't know why there should be an issue on this matter, except people have come with their own presuppositions and then try to interpret the Bible around their presuppositions. But anyone reading the Scriptures, it becomes very... The most powerful verse to me is what Christ said himself in Matthew chapter 10. You can kill the body... But you can't kill the soul. It's very, very clear that the body is not the soul. That's my point. And then Paul adds that there's the soul and the spirit as well. And then Hebrews talks about that. But they seem to be connected in some way that they can be identified, but almost inseparable. Is there any way to know when our soul begins? Does God create a soul for every person that is conceived? Did God at the beginning of eternity create 80 billion souls? Do we know that? Do we need to discuss it? Well, I, I can just tell you the two um, theological views on that, to be honest with you. There's what you call the tradition view, which believes that uh, the human soul and spirit is actually, um, as a result of the husband and the wife coming together, that God has given them that. that. So, In other words, not only is the body part of the union between a husband and a wife, but traditions believe that the spirit and the soul is created within the, with, with, uh, between the, the couple. Okay. The creationists believe that God directly creates the soul and joins the soul with the body. Again, that's a theological debate that's been going on for, for centuries. Nobody can tell you you're either traditionist or you are creationist. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I like the... Th- uh, I am not too sure where I stand on that. I just know that we have a soul and we have a spirit. I know that the uh, God creates mankind, but whether or not in the process he allows the, the mother and the father to be part of that creative process of the soul and spirit, that is a mystery. Nobody knows. Um, so it, it's very, very difficult. But we do know that every human being have a body, every human being have a spirit, every human being has a soul. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Do you have a question? We would love to hear it. We'd love to answer it from the Bible. The phone number to call and be put live on the air is 268-462-7420. 268-462-7420. And if you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Ready to move on to the next question? Yeah, I would like to make a little subtle issue. If, you, if any person has the, there's a book called um, Systematic Theology by Thiessen. Yep. He has a very good section uh, dealing with the, the soul. And uh, what he basically does, 
uh, and I didn't want I, I have the notes here and I didn't want to go through it in, in great detail but he, he shows you where is the seat of the personality and he will give you verses for that he also shows you where is the seat of the sentient elements in man like per- how man perceives how man reflects how man feels how man desires and he also shows you the seat of the human purpose and human will and he will out- the other thing that he shows you that the some of these same things are referred to the spirit and some of these same things are referred to the soul doing the same thing uh, in different verses and that's why there is a connection between the soul and the spirit where you can distinguish it but they seem to be inseparable but those are the immaterial parts of man generally speaking people say that the body is the world conscious part of man the soul is the self-consciousness and the spirit is the God consciousness part of man I think that helps people to understand the uh, differentiate between the three very uh, practical question that has just come in uh, from Antigua. Can a man sell his soul? Well, I think that expression is used as, uh, like people sell their soul to the devil, and what that merely means is sell himself to the devil. In, in that sense, uh, remember that the body houses the soul. Uh, in that sense, uh, I suppose that's what I mean. And don't forget the soul is the self-consciousness part of man. The body is just a shell. So when a man makes that conscious decision, uh, I, I suspect that he would be able to make that decision because without the soul, he can't. he's not a sentient being. He, he doesn't have intellect. He doesn't have these, these type. So when he makes that decision, it's not his body making that decision. It's the soul part of man that makes him conscious, uh, which includes the um, man has intellect, man has emotions, and um, emotions, intellect, and uh, feelings, basically. So I would say uh, selling this, uh, selling himself, basically. That's what that's what how it's interpreted. And there are people, by the way, that get supernatural power who have done that. They've actually sold themselves to Satan, uh, and in that sense, he sold his soul to Satan. Would you say that if a person? falls into sin, a period of sin that they have sold their soul? No, that's something completely different. I mean, this is something who people make a willful choice. Uh, this is a matter of the will, free volition. Uh, a person can fall into sin um, in, unintentionally, uh, but I think most people fall into sin uh, are not selling their souls to the devil, where they're, they're saying to him, I want your power, I, I want you to take over my life. Uh, that's not what a person is saying when they fall into sin. Uh, to sell one soul to the devil basically is that you want something, and normally it's about power, it's about knowing maybe the future, um, uh, being able to cast spells on people and, and do what is called the occult practices. And that is why, by the way, when these people die, they die very miserable. And normally when people are engaged in this kind of occult activity, they have to transfer it to somebody else. Otherwise, there's, there's far more torment when they're going out, going up. So when they get old and they know they've got to pass it on, transfer it, without that, they'll be tormented. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 821. We have a text message from St. Kitts. Good night, Pastor Murphy. Did Job know that it was the devil persecuting him in the beginning when he started losing his personal belongings and his children? It's very, very clear that uh, he thought that God had targeted him. Job never... Job, Job, read the book of Job very carefully. Uh, Job just think that God has been unjust to him and unkind to him because he's been so faithful. He's been, he's a man who's perfect, a man who's righteous. He's a very much aware that he's a man of integrity, and he can't figure out why, if he is so connected with God, these things are happening to him. So he's, he's not, uh, he doesn't blame the devil 
uh, he, he he blames God. He thinks God is the one that is stripping him of everything that he has, and he can't figure out why would God do this to him. So there's no there's no indication in the book of Job that he ever uh, makes the the mention that the enemy is the one who is actually causing all of this trouble. And by the way, the nature of the things that came upon Job. Uh, for example, at one case he brings the, the storm and the wind to blow down the house. Normally we don't think the devil controls that. We think that God controls that. So all of these things are happening. And then uh, we normally think of God controlling the nations. And these people came to, to, to attack Job and stole, stole his, um, his livestock and stole his, um, his assets. So he is actually seeing God in this as the one behind all of this engineering, his, um, uh, all this pain and all this hurt. So there's no indication that he's aware that the devil is doing it. We know because it's a drama, basically, and we know behind the scene what is really happening. Um, but the irony is that Job is not aware of it, so that he's acting as though God is the one who's responsible. If you read Job very carefully, Job really believes that God controls everything. We believe that too. So uh, he's very, very deeply puzzled in that regard. In Job chapter 1 and verse 16 how did Satan send or call fire from heaven and burn up his sheep and servants? I'll read that verse. Job one sixteen says, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them. And I am only escaped alone to tell thee. And the question again is, how did Satan send or call fire from heaven to burn up? Well, all, all, all we know about that is God gave permission. Satan can do uh, powerful things. Don't forget that uh, in terms of the universe, he's his next um, outside of the Godhood. Um, is the, the, the most powerful being outside uh, the Godhead. And uh, the Lord gave him permission. He said, "Listen, do what you want to Job. The only thing you must do, you can't, you can't kill him." And uh, he allowed uh, Satan to have permission to control the elements to make that happen. And Satan can do some very, very, very powerful things. Uh, people who, if you read about Satanism and demonology and find what some of these people can do, uh, you know, people laugh at voodooism, for example, but you go to Haiti, you'd be let you begin really how much power these people have. Of course, they can't touch the believer because the believer is under the blood. But these people can do some very, very powerful things. You might think I'm crazy, but I also believe that there's something called astral travel, that people can actually leave their bodies. This is, this is, this is a reality. Uh, I can tell you of a person who has been converted, a believer, a pastor, who has done something of that in his life. I can tell you of that. And so this is not, this is not fiction. This is, this is real. The occult is real. Satanism is real, just like God is real. And we ought not to pretend that these things are not so. Uh, but we're not to delve in them because the Bible puts all these restrictions that we're not to engage in these kind of activities. But he was given the power, and uh, God put a, a, a pale around Job, uh, a fence around Job, and uh, until that fence was removed, Satan could do anything uh, to Job. But permission was given, and clearly he gave in the control of the elements to make that possible. And another question along those same lines. In Job one nineteen. How did the devil send a great wind from the wilderness and smote the house? And Job one nineteen says, And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men 
and they are dead, and I only have escaped to tell thee. Again, we've only got scripture as an answer to that question. Again, uh, the Lord told uh, the devil, I give you permission, you do whatever you want to do to Job. And that means in this case, the Lord allowed him to get permission to control the winds in order for that to happen. Outside of that, you will have uh, Satan commanding God to do uh, these activities, but God uh, is not the one responsible for these activities. It's Satan who has been doing it, and uh, God has given him permission. So he can't, he can engage in certain activities, but he's limited by a sovereign God who controls even Satan himself. In Job chapter 1, verse 15, what is a Sabians? And the verse says, And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped. Sabians are a group of people, uh, just like the Egyptians or the Amorites or the, uh, the Hittites. They're a group of people living in that part of the world. That um, so again, again. Notice that permission is given even for him, for even for the uh, Satan to to move tribes or people against Job. Uh, that they invade the territory. That gives you an idea of how much power he can have when God removes his hand. And uh, as a matter of fact, when you go into the book of Revelation, now you're going to discover the power of Satan in the book of Revelation, that he is going to have give the, the false prophet so much power that he'll perform miracles, mesmerize the world, and the whole world will worship Satan. Imagine that. That gives you an idea. But again, it cannot be done without God giving permission. And the reason why that will be allowed, because the Bible says, they that were told the truth uh, did not receive the truth. God was sending strong delusionment. They've rejected the gospel. They would not receive Jesus Christ. The day is coming when they will be deluded and they will believe the lie so that they may be damned because they've rejected the truth. The Bible talks about it in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And one final question from the book of Job. Obviously, this listener is studying Job, and we appreciate you sending in your questions. In Job chapter 2 and verse number 3, can you explain the phrase, Thou movedest against him? And the verse says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered thy, my servant Job? And there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And still he holdeth fast for his integrity, although thou movedest me against him to destroy him without cause. Yeah. Well, you know, you've got to look at it in the context. Remember, this is a dramatic presentation of an activity that's going on. Um, but basically, what the Lord is here saying, uh, you know, you've got this perfect man, but you've, you, you, you want me to put him to the test. And the, the whole argument of Satan is this. Job is just serving you because of all the blessings you've brought in Job's life. So he's serving you for the wrong motive, what he can get out of serving God. A lot of people serve God that way. They serve the Lord when things are going good, money in the bank, nice car, nice house, uh, nice clothing, uh, you know, designers this, designers that, everything is going to then suddenly they come down with some kind of a sickness or maybe they lose their job or maybe the mortgage falls through and then suddenly their faith vanish. This is the kind of uh, the, the kind of thing that is going on and uh, the Lord said, okay, um, put Job to the test and I can assure you that you do everything to Job. I guarantee you that he's not serving me because of what I can give him or what he can get out of me. 
He's serving me because I'm the true and the living God. I'm the sovereign God. And uh, Job is serving me uh, out of reverence and fear. But his motive has nothing to do with material things. And I think, by the way, that uh, the Lord has to show people in the earth that. It's not just for Job's sake. It's for people who are looking on. Because there are a lot of people who think that Christians just serve the Lord because of benefits. But when you see a believer struggling who served the Lord for many, many years, maybe going through cancer or maybe have lost a child, uh, that says that people don't want to know if God is real. And once the sun is shining... Uh, people don't have a problem serving the Lord. But when the storm comes, and people can see people remaining in the storm, it's then they realize that there's this, this something, something more to the Christian faith than just the sunshine. And I think that God is, was using Job uh, for that purpose. So while he's, a battle is going on between Satan and the Lord over Job, I think it is more for those on planet Earth observing Job's life uh, to show that uh, a man can serve God and every, he can lose everything and still remain true to God, even though he's stripped of everything he's, he's had. Uh, that is the acid test of a genuine, authentic faith that is faith in God and not dependent on riches or wealth or well-being. Uh, confidence and faith in the living God. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We look forward to your interaction tonight. Thank you to those who have already sent in your questions or called in with a question or concern. You can call and be put live on the air. Call 1-268-462-7420. The phone line is open and available. We still have 30 minutes left in the program, so go ahead and encourage others to tune in if you haven't already. Encourage them to tune in to 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, or online at org, or they can go to the Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and join us on Facebook Live. Look, I think most of us would agree that the persons that means most to us in terms of our Christian faith are, are people who are going through tremendous trials. I think they make a greater impression upon us than somebody who has everything, got it all together, and they never seem to have, <coughs> they never seem to have a problem. The, the genuineness <coughs> of the person's faith is seen that when he goes through difficulties and hard times and, and um, he's going through the grinder, that he remains faithful and true uh, to God. I think that makes a greater impression on, on people than a believer who... Uh, never have a problem, never have an issue, and seem to have everything that he would ever desire. Um, I, I think if you look at it very carefully, you would have to agree with me that the man that is more genuine, more authentic, is that man that everything is pulled from under him, but yet his faith remains firm. That causes people to answer questions, because people people are basically selfish, okay? And when they see somebody that is serving God without any goodies, that alerts them that there's something more to this person's life than is the ordinary man's. And that's how God uses individuals to prompt people to move them to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to go through trials in our lives. Uh, And it helps other people to understand that Christianity is not uh, just sunshine. Uh, Christianity is real, it is genuine, it's authentic, it's truth. And believers are fully committed to the faith, irrespective of what happens to them. Very true. We are going to jump back until we get additional questions that come in. We're going to jump back to a topic that we started 
maybe a month ago on demons and demonology. And if you are interested in catching up, if maybe you weren't listening to that episode and you want to hear all the specifics, uh, you can go to episode 124 on uh, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Scroll down to the microphone picture, click on podcast, and then go to episode 124 of That's Truth and you will have a full episode about demonology. But just to rehash real quickly, Pastor started out talking about uh, what do we mean by demons and demonology? Why is there such a fascination and an interest in this topic? Why is there so much confusion and misunderstanding on this topic? And where we left off last time, Pastor was talking about, does the Bible really teach the existence of demons? Yeah, and I think we we kind of established that um, every writer, we try to point out every single writer, eight New Testament writers, and every New Testament writer you find in the New Testament mentions in their writings about demons. Uh, The other thing that we pointed out um, is that uh, Christ himself um, is one that not only taught about demons, but he's also one that delivered uh, people from from demon possession. Um, we made reference to Matthew seven twenty two, Matthew ten eight, Matthew twelve twenty seven, Matthew twenty five forty, Matt, Mark seven twenty nine, Mark sixteen seventeen, Luke ten twenty, and uh, Luke eleven eleven eighteen to twenty, etc. And then we we talked about the, our Lord delivering. Uh, people who were demon-possessed. References there would be Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 to 29, Mark chapter 1, 39, Mark 5, 1 to 20, Luke 4, 35 and 41, Luke 8, 29 to 33, Luke 9, 42, Luke 11, 14. I, I gave the references there just in case anybody wants to write them down. But if the Messiah, Christ, uh, taught that there were demons, if he himself uh, did exorcisms in casting out demons, it is inconceivable for me for anybody to call himself a Christian to say that there are no such thing as demons. It's unfathomable that the, the Messiah, God's Son, and uh, the Son of God could clearly declare uh, on these matters, and, uh, and then we will have people uh, saying that they're believers and yet not believe that there's such a thing as demons. Those people that may—I want to—look, we have created a Christianity that's not biblical Christianity. We either accept the full package— or we can't be selective, okay? We can't believe that in creation and believe in evolution at the same time, okay? Jesus Christ either created or evolution created. But it's, it's not, so you cannot be a Christian and be an evolutionist. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and say that there are no demons because he taught there were demons and he himself cast out demons, so he had to be a madman or disillusioned to make those kind of claims. So let us not uh, embrace the idea of people who make these kind of statements and call it the Christians. Let's say that they are professed Christians, but they're not true, genuine, authentic believers. We need to be very clear on these matters because there's so much confusion on these matters. Uh, and and, and um, I am not the type of person who would tolerate those kind of things, yes. Pastor, we have a caller. Nathan from Nevis, thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good evening. Good evening, Nathan. Um, I'm calling about uh, mostly two passages of Scripture from Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 and verses 3, and verse 3. 
No, I want to know if this 144,000 that is recorded here is the same that were seen in Revelation chapter 7. Yeah, the same. 144,000, the same, yes, they are. No, John say he looked and saw a lamb. Uh-huh. Stood on Mount Zion. Right. And with him, uh-huh. 144,000. Right. And in verse 3, uh-huh. he says, A song was sung in heaven, and only the 144,000 could learn that song. Uh-huh. So what's the problem, uh, Nathan? No, These are the, uh, I, 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 the idea that this is during the time of the beast of Revelation 13. Uh-huh. Yeah, but don't don't forget that um, I, I got I have to look at chapter 14 and, and chapter 13. I, I, I'm just speaking here without having the, the data before me. But the 144,000 are the same 144,000. These are the evangelists that will be chosen during the end time after the church is raptured. These are 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. God knows the tribes. You don't have to worry about how how you get the tribe of Judah. He knows the tribes. I and, don't have a problem. With right, right. God knows them. But they are going to be the. They're going to play the role. What the church should have been doing in evangelizing the world. The church would have has failed miserably, miserably. Because you've got, after, uh, you know, the, the, the 12 disciples turned the world upside down. You've got so many believers, and we've got so many people unreached. So during the tribulation period after the church is raptured, God now grasps back in Israel into his plan, and he selects 144,000 who become the advance that could carry the gospel all over the world. Uh, they are going to be the ones that will carry the message during the tribulation period. Uh, so I think in verse 3 of Revelation 14, he says, These follow the Lamb wherever he goeth. Right. But don't forget the, the Lamb is, is Christ, right? And where is Mount Zion? Mount Zion? Is it on the earth or in heaven? Well, the Mount Zion, uh, there, there are two Mount Zions, okay? Yeah. There is the earthly Mount Zion, which is the earthly Jerusalem. You'll find that in the book of Hebrews as well. And there's a heavenly Mount Zion called the heavenly Jerusalem that will come down. So, but there it is speaking about the land. Don't forget that book of Revelation is a pictorial book. And what I mean by that is, there's a lot of symbols in the book of Revelation. Uh, and that is why that kind of language is used uh, as being uh, the lamb. For example, Jesus Christ is the lamb because he is the lamb that died for the sins of the world. So that when they see a picture of the lamb, it's a, a pictorial diagram, or a picture of Christ pointed to Christ. When you talk about Mount Zion, you talk about Jerusalem. Uh, because Christ will rule from Jerusalem during the, the Millennial Kingdom. Hello? Hello. Okay. Um, and did Jesus have a soul? Well, if he was a human being, he would have to have a soul, because if he's not a human being, he's not a true man. He had to be a true man and a, and a true and a, a, he's, he's both the God man at the same time. If you say they didn't have a soul, it means not a true man. Oh. Okay, because I read in uh, I think it's Mark chapter fourteen and verse thirty-four, uh-huh. where Jesus Himself said, 
My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Correct. But you also said in, uh, you remember Psalms, the Psalm that we read, you will not leave my soul in hell. Yes. Remember David quoted that Psalm and Peter in Acts chapter 2 referring, that's his humanity. Remember okay. that Christ is a man. If we don't keep the idea that, uh, if we don't keep the balance that he is the God-man, you always end up in trouble. And, and throughout church history, there are those who said he was God, and they argue he was not a true man, he was God, and those who argue he was just a man, he was not God. The biblical position that we have, he's the God-man. He was 100% man, 100% God. And we know he needs to be that way because as a man, he has to be able to die for man's sin because man is the one that created the problem. But as God, that sacrifice has to be efficacious for everybody. And no, no human being could just die for the world. So that is why you must have the God-man. If you don't have that as a, as a biblical doctrine, you'll always go off on your theology. Okay, thanks a lot. Have a good night. You too, sir. Thanks for calling. We really appreciate that. God bless you. And thank you for faithfully listening there in Nevis and encouraging others to tune in. No matter where you are listening tonight, we are thankful that you have taken time out of your busy schedule I know life gets busier and busier with every year, it seems, and we know that you have a busy life, and we appreciate you taking time to tune in and listen to That's Truth, and not only listen, but to send us your questions or ask your questions. It, there is still time. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left in the program, so if you'd like to call, you can be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available. Again, it's one 462 7420 If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 268-782-1454. Pastor, you were, before that call, you were talking specifically about uh, what the Bible teaches. Yeah. The thing is, we, we pointed out to you that in every New Testament writer supports the idea that they're demons. Eight writers, eight emphasize that. We mentioned that Christ not only said there were demons, but he also cast out demons. The third argument that would use that the disciples recognize uh, demons. Uh, you'll find in Matthew chapter 10 verse 1 it has to do with the 12 disciples and then in Luke chapter 10 verse 17 it has to do with the 70 disciples. Our Lord commissioned the, the 70 to go and cast out demons. Not that no real demons. Uh, he's mocking the disciples. That's yeah. my point, right? So I, I'm having a difficulty understanding why anybody would disbelieve this such thing as demonic powers to have the entire Writers in New Testament endorse it. The Son of God Himself to sanction it, and then the disciples Himself. So all of these people were disillusioned. Uh, I think that uh, the individual who doubts are more disillusioned than these other uh, persons in the Bible. What about for the individual who says, yes, back in Bible times, because Christ was on earth, there was demons, but there's not demon activity here on earth in this day and age? My answer to that is very quick, very easy. Go to go to uh, Ephesians chapter six. Okay. Where Paul talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So what are we wrestling against? And he goes on to principalities and powers and spiritual powers and uh, um, spiritual powers and in wickedness in, in in places, uh, in heavenly places. And then he talks the the um, the powers of darkness of this world, darkness. So clearly, the apostle Paul is is making sure that there's a spiritual warfare going on in, in that regard. So Paul uh, answers that particular question. Uh, as far as that is concerned, and then when you come to the book of um, the book of Revelation, 
it's very, very obvious in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of demonic activity that will once again resurge. When Jesus Christ came on the earth, it's like, though well, he stirred up the entire demonic world because the Son of God had come. When he's about to return, uh, the devil is very much aware he's about to return, and you're going to find a, a more aggressive demonic activity. But you can't read the book of Revelation without seeing there's also demonic activity. And even in connection with the false Christ. And in connection with the Antichrist, uh, you find that it's said that the, the power of Satan is given to these and they perform different miracles. In, in Paul's writings, Paul talks about the doctrine of demons that in this era, uh, this, this, this New Testament era, this church era, that demonic powers would actually be espousing different doctrines. Uh, so I don't know how you can escape that because it happened in the New Testament, and um, no, you know it's not happening today. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, made it very clear that during this interim period before the Lord returns, you're going to have the, all this kind of demonic activity. It's asserted by Paul in the book of First uh, Timothy and Second Timothy. Are there any other reasons that you uh, believe that the Bible teaches the existence of demons? Well, uh, whether the Bible taught it or not, I could confirm because I've had an encounter. Uh, I've seen it for my own eyes. It's not that anybody have told me. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it in two places in Antigua, for sure. Uh, so... I, I've seen it by experience. It's not and just, you're not just imagining things? No, this is clear not imagined. I mean, uh, I, if I were to give details on this particular thing, and there are other people, by the way, uh, who could confirm some of what I would say. So it's not this, this is not fiction. This is reality. Not but isn't only, it just the Charismatics and the Pentecostals that believe in uh, demons? I think it's unfortunate that that is so. Uh, I, I know that there are certain uh, Baptist churches that really don't like to deal with this kind of stuff. They just think it's maybe imaginary. But again, that is allowing the uh, the extreme extremism of one group to somehow impact your doctrinal belief. You don't get your doctrinal experience from what other people are doing. You get from the Scripture. The Scripture affirms these things, but experience also adds uh, to confirmation on, on this matter. But, it's, you know... It, the fact that you see it and the fact that you've actually experienced itself, it helps to confirm the biblical doctrine. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.47. We have 11 minutes left in the program tonight. Pastor, let, let, let me just give an example. Let me let me just share this with the, with, uh, the audience who is listening. Look, I went to one, I went to one house one time uh, for a lady who was demonized. And... Um, my wife and another lady in our church is, um, you know, they, they deal more with that kind of situation. And I sent my wife along with the lady to go and see this particular person. Now, this lady had never met my wife in her entire life. Don't even know who my wife is, see. And um, when my wife came to see her, she, she said these words to my wife. Oh, your husband was scared, so that's why he sent you. Hmm. I mean, when my wife came back and told me that, I said, but this woman doesn't even know you, see. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is not fiction. This is not uh, not creating a story. I'm not trying to create a narrative. I'm telling you exactly what happened, right? This 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 uh, demonic thing is very, very, very real, and uh, people have to wake up to the reality of it. So based on that account there, you're saying that demons have 
knowledge that we, from our human perspective, would not have. Of course, when we when we talk about the signs of demonism and being possessed, for example, uh, we will talk about the fact that they do have knowledge that is uh, not knowledge that they have gleaned uh, by I telling them. But they know things about me, they know things about you. As a matter of fact, the reason why some people don't get involved in this kind of thing because the demons would embarrass them. Not literally, they embarrass them. I mean, they tell them certain things. <laughs> heard a situation like that. Like uncover their sin. Uncover their sin. Oh, so you, you t- you're trying to tell me that I, I, I committed uh, uh, adultery. Well, you remember uh, you remember so-and-so? I mean, it, it literally happened. Hmm. That's why people are scared to death. A lot of them deal with this because they can reveal things about you that uh, <laughs> can shock you. Okay? So they do know uh, certain things, and you've got to be very, very careful in that regard. I, I, I don't like to deal with this. It's not my realm, to be very honest with you. Right. Uh, but people ought to be aware that they do have uh, information, and sometimes it can be devastating uh, to an individual. But for the, especially the pastor, the church leader, or church member, I mean, these situations can arise, and often at the most unexpected moments. Uh, should we shy away from them? Should how should we handle it? Uh, I know that's a loaded question. Yeah, it's not a load. It's a, a loaded question, but in, in the sense that you know, look, I am the pastor of Grace Baptist Church. Um, if we had an encounter with a situation like that, I feel I'm obligated to get involved because I'm the pastor. I feel that the deacons of the church should get involved because they're part, they're part of the, the spiritual network of the church. So I don't think it is uh, a question whether we should get involved in these kind of things. We don't go looking for demons. But if there is a demonic attack in the church, uh, I would expect the leaders of the church to get involved uh, in whatever way. And, and by the way, there needs to be some kind of preparation. Yeah. Um and the whole church can get involved in, in these matters. Uh, as, as Nathan, you would know in, in our own experience, while we were dealing with the situation, we had the church praying. I mean, this is not something I wanted to dally in. in my, I may not be the, the most spiritual person at that time, especially dealing with something, something be going on in your life, and your life is so weak. So you need the support of the brethren. So uh, I don't think this is something that we can just bury and pretend it's not there. But at the same time, uh, we don't just we're not ghostbusters. Uh, some churches, everything is a, a demon and stuff like that. We're not that. But if it does happen, I think it's right and proper for the pastor and the deacons uh, to get involved. You're listening to that's truth, broadcasting from the island on the Caribbean radio from the island of Antigua on the Caribbean radio lighthouse. Pastor, how are uh, demons? Described and what names are they given in Scripture so that as I'm reading through Scripture, I can keep an eye out? Well, it's interesting when you look into the Old Testament, you find reference to demons, and you come into the New Testament, there's also reference. So the best thing probably to do is to look into the Old Testament uh, and uh, try to understand um, what this is is all about, and uh, exactly what Old Testament terminology is used to describe these these demonic powers. Uh, if we look at Psalm seventy eight verse forty nine, you'll find a reference there. Psalm forty seventy nine verse forty nine. Psalm forty seventy nine forty nine. Psalm seventy nine forty nine. Forty-nine. Uh, Psalm seventy-nine only has thirteen verses. 
78. 78. Sorry, sorry. 78. 78. 49. Too many numbers got me all confused. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Psalm 78-49. 49. All right. I got the right verse now. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation, and trouble by sending evil angels among them. Right. That's one of the ex- Old Testament uh, expressions there. Um evil angels because demons are fallen evil angels and in this case God is using these demonic powers uh, to chasten his people look even Satan serves the purpose of God every human being every being created serves serves purpose and what that means that God allows and admits uh, demonic powers to, to affect people you remember Saul King Saul, disobedient yeah. King Saul, the Lord, Lord allowed an evil spirit to go and possess Paul. It doesn't mean what God has withhold His hand, uh, withheld His protection from Saul's life, so that a demonic power can can actually influence him and control him. And of course, uh, that's what happened in the case of uh, King Saul. So here, that's one of the references. And by the way, the word is, the word evil angel there, the word angel, of course, is messenger. So these are evil messengers of Satan that they use. Yes. You mentioned that, that this angel or this evil angel uh, afflicted Saul. Are there things that I as a believer can get involved in that are like an open door that allow? Yes. Uh, I think that, that's a good question. People who are involved with um, the Ouija board, Ouija board, uh, people who play with those kind of things, there are certain um, uh, other games that you can get involved in. If you are reading uh, books on black magic, the association there, the transfer occurs. It, it opens a door and you should. The other thing is when you go to different places, different parts of the world, I don't want to seem as though I'm against, um, I, I'm not a, a racist, okay, whatever. But there are times that there, when you go to, like, the idols that you can buy, like, in the Philippines. Or you go to Africa, where the witch doctors, and they sell, they make these effigies, and you put you put them on sale, like you, like craft. And uh, even that association, I remember some time ago, my wife brought back a, um, a ceramic um, figurine. Ob- figurine. Uh, and uh, it had the eyes were missing and I remember seeing that in the house and I said immediately you need to get rid of that thing it was a, it's like I was seeing something in, in mm. that particular. but those kind of things you remember the book of Acts when the uh, Ephesians got converted they, they brought out all the things and got rid of all of this paraphernalia that was involved in the occult uh, there are a lot of effigies that are involved in, in, in the occult things, and sometimes these are made and made available in the marketplace as though they are craft. Uh, that Anything associated with those kind of things need to be taken out of your house, etc., etc. If you've got books that are dealing with the occult and demonism, etc., uh, etc., et you remove those from your house as well. Uh, there's some there's a drawing association with those things that it's like opening a door in your home so you need to cleanse all those kind of if you've got certain type of music like they've got people into heavy rock and these rock bands with all of these uh, demonic things that are played back in the mask they call it masking those things should be removed from your home open a door there's something called transfer and association we associate with these things Uh, and that's why by the way in the Old Testament when the Israelites were going into the land of Canaan the Lord said 
totally destroy everything. Totally mm-hmm. destroy everything. Because the association with them somehow creates that door for, demon, uh, for demonic influence. So um, it can happen by dealing with... And people who deal with the Ouija board, by the way, uh, it has happened. I remember some time ago in Barbados that happened with, with even school children. But Christians must not be engaged in those kind of activities. God said these are things to be destroyed and gotten rid of. What about for the individual who says, I have dealt with that in the past... But the lyrics of the songs or uh, the experiences of playing with the Ouija board or these other games, it keeps coming back to my mind. Pastor, how do they purge what that? What I would say to that person, there has to be a renunciation of that association. Like a verbal renunciation? Yes, a verbal prayer. Uh, that that should be part of the um, – when you do exorcism and you're dealing with cleansing with people like that and people have been associated with these kind of things, uh, they, they need to publicly renounce those kind of – I'm told in the, in the early church when people were baptized – and coming out of the paganism at their baptism, they will renounce any kind of association with demonic activity, whether it be witchcraft or, or whatever uh, occult they were involved in. But that was a public renunciation. And I think the other thing is that if it's uh, if you haven't repented of it and renounced it and t- turned your back of it, um, you may continue to have that kind of problem because you've never really repented. The other thing is, you need to renew your mind, so you need to get into the Scripture, and uh, that would help you because the renewing of the mind, the process takes place by reading the Scripture, meditating on the Scripture, memorizing Scripture, quoting Scripture, using Scripture. In the last 30 seconds, so in Ephesus, they burned these items. Mm-hmm. Do I need to burn items that I have? I or would strongly recommend that. Take not it just throw the, it in the trash can? No, no, just burn it. Because what if somebody sees it and somebody gets it? You want to get rid of this whole stuff. Thank you for listening to That's Truth tonight. Be sure that you tune in next week. And Lord willing, we will be picking up with this topic of demonology. If you have a question that comes to you before, then send it in. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.